0: This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Our scripture this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, Mark 8:22 8, to thirty, They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He, that is Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people but they looked like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. For the word of God in Scripture... For the word of god among us for the word of god within us thanks be to god <clears throat> billy eilish thought she was going to be a dancer she'd been dancing seriously for several years ballet tap jazz hip-hop contemporary and when she was 12 she joined a competitive dance company it was In her words, a lot of really pretty girls who were all in school together, all friends. And that was probably when I was the most insecure, Eilish says. I wasn't as confident. I couldn't speak and just be normal. When I think about it or see pictures of me then, I was so not okay with who I was. And then at 13 years old, just as she was starting to get pretty good, catastrophe struck. She says, I was in a hip-hop class with all the seniors, the most advanced level, and then she ruptured the growth plate in her hip. The injury was devastating and she had to quit dance altogether. And I think that's when the depression started, she says. It sent me down a hole. I went through a whole self-harming phase. I felt like I deserved to be in pain. Well, now that she couldn't dance anymore, she found other outlets for her creative energies, and she started to translate some of that pain by writing songs, writing music. Well, her older brother, Phineas, four years older, was in a band and he had written a song entitled Ocean Eyes. And her brother realized Billy could sing pretty well and they decided to record her singing it instead of Phineas's band and they sang it for her dance teacher who she no longer could dance for who'd asked for a song to choreograph a routine to. And so they recorded it in her bedroom and uploaded it to SoundCloud. Right? Just a brother and sister, just Make a little music, let's record it up to SoundCloud, send it along to the dance teacher. Well, it went viral almost overnight, amassing hundreds of thousands of downloads. And before it could be properly released on an album, it had a billion streams on Spotify. Not a million, a billion. And so Billie, who thought she was going to be a dancer, became the youngest person and only the second in history to win the four main Grammy categories. Best New Artist, Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and Album of the Year, all in the same year. Well, some of you know there's a new documentary just released uh, this past week about Billie Eilish entitled The World's a Little Blurry. I shamelessly borrowed that title for today's theme. And it highlights some of her life and her experiences and the fact that she has uh, something called synesthesia. And I may be saying that wrong. Synesthesia. And it's uh, a condition in which the neurosensory wire crossing in, in, within us seems to blend senses together. And here's her explanation of how she experiences this. She says, every person I know has their own color and shape and number in my head. They've got a color, shape, and a number. And she says, it's normal to me. Her brother Phineas, for example, is an orange triangle, even though the name Phineas is dark green. And her song entitled, Bad Guy, is yellow, but also red and the number seven, she says. It's not hot, hot, but warm like an oven, and it smells like cookies. What an interesting explanation of how she senses, experiences, and sees the world. And I give that background on this artist because it highlights, in many ways, the peculiar nature of life, right, that all of us. Whether or not we have a condition like Billy, no matter how good our physical eyesight, we all at some level struggle to see clearly. Life can be confusing. It can be hard. We don't know which direction to go. We aren't sure who we are. And we wonder if we're moving in the right direction. Well, in our text today, Jesus and the disciples arrive to Bethsaida, and a man is brought to them who is blind, and Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him out of town. And it'd be easy to read past this part and just get right to the healing, but I wonder if there's something to this. Jesus takes him out of the context in which he finds him, out of the setting in which he's known as the blind man the setting in which others think they know who this person is and in which he thinks he knows himself. Because sometimes we're so caught up in our situation and our setting that we imagine we understand who we are, but our vision, speaking metaphorically, of course, is limited. And so we need to get Out, we need to break out sometimes in order to see. I wonder if you can identify with that. If you've ever uh, moved to a new town, changed schools, or taken a new job. You know the power of moving from an old setting into a new one, right? In that old setting, people had ideas and understandings about who you or who you were, who they perceived you to be, and their ideas no doubt colored your own self-understanding and how you saw yourself, but when you move into a new place and people don't have any of that past history or labeling or misunderstanding of who you are, it can feel liberating. It can feel freeing. There's a poem by uh, the Sufi poet Rumi entitled, somewhat ironically, Quietness, and I've shared it before here, And, and listen again. It goes like this, just five brief lines. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. Five short but powerful lines. And so, what about you this morning? Who are you? Are you stuck? Are you having trouble seeing clearly who you are or the path ahead? Sometimes we need Jesus to take us by the hand and lead us right out of town. Because when we're in overly familiar contexts, we're not even aware that we can't see things clearly ourselves. And a new vantage point can mean everything. And so Jesus takes this man away, away from the hurtful words of others, a place where healing is possible. And the text highlights that his head is down, a sign that he may feel deflated, defeated, tired from it all. John Carroll, in his book, The Existential Jesus, writes that this man's head may have been drooped low in melancholy and that looking down may be the essential human condition. Seeing nothing is in oblivion or permanent forgetfulness and carol notes that uh blindness is Mm -hmm. a metaphor a metaphor for this state well once outside of town jesus spits into his eyes and touches them and he asks the man whether he sees anything and famously uh the man uh, the droop the man raises his drooped head and he lifts his gaze and says he sees men like trees walking And a good question is if the two of them were outside of town by themselves, which seems to be uh, inferred here, what are other people doing there? Perhaps they are trees, like dead men walking. Well, the potency of this one line, John Carroll notes, will generate recurrences throughout Western literature, not least in Shakespeare's Macbeth, where in a midrashic scene, the principal character's end is signaled by him seeing a wood of trees on the move. And from that moment, Macbeth is a dead man. It takes a second effort by Jesus to bring clear vision. And it's worth thinking about whether Jesus, too, is struggling to gain clarity. As he stands with this man, formerly blind, now finally able to see after much effort, perhaps Jesus is starting to see his own future. Perhaps this man is a device, a stand-in for the master whose vision is now also coming into focus. Because in some ways, it is he who is the dead man walking. The tree will reappear as the cross. Perhaps this is the moment of Jesus' first true seeing. Because later in this chapter, in this very same chapter, he will mention his fate and the cross for the very first time. Now, perhaps we cringe at this reading. We expect, you know, Jesus knew his fate all along, right? Jesus knew it all, we often imagine. But it's helpful to remember that a central Christian doctrine is that of kenosis, self-emptying, that to whatever extent Jesus was divine, he emptied himself of it while he bore flesh and blood like any of us. And as such, he, like you and me, had to discover his own path. He had to learn who he was and who he was meant to be. Now, John Carroll notes that in the background here may be the Greek understanding that oblivion or not understanding is the normal human state, as we've already mentioned. And the Greek word for oblivion is lethe, lethe, L-E-T-H-E, as transliterated into English. And the Greek word, interestingly for truth, is aletheia, that is without lethe. Lethe was A word for oblivion, but it was also a place of oblivion or forgetfulness. It was one of the rivers running to the underworld. And to drink its water was to sink into a state of forgetfulness and unknowing. And so truth by contrast, is the rare condition of seeing through the mists of oblivion, a condition of clarity or illumination. And so a reality facing us this morning is that things may not be as clear to us as we think they are. If even Jesus had to discover his own path, had to learn his vocation, how much more us, How do we learn to see in a world that is a little blurry? Well, if we go with this idea that Jesus is just beginning to gain more clarity on his own vocation and destiny, it makes sense that he too would need to get out of his context to see more clearly. He too would need to leave town. And so in the very next moment after the healing at Bethsaida in Galilee, Jesus takes his disciples on a 50-mile hike north to Caesarea Philippi. It's the furthest north that the Gospels ever record Jesus going. It is into unfamiliar Greco-Roman territory. Caesarea Philippi was also known as Peneus or Banyas, after the Greek god Pan. It's located at the foot of Mount Hermon, north of the Golan Heights, and there's a spring there that forms one of the tributaries to the Jordan River, and it initially originated in a large cave carved out of a sheer cliff face, which was gradually lined with a series of shrines. This was a very religious site to the god Pan, to uh, other gods, Baal. And the spring coming out of the cave was thought to be a route to the underworld. A route to the underworld. A river to Hades. Already spoken about the river Lethe, a river to Hades. It was also, as such, known as the Gate of Hades. And in other gospel accounts of this visit, Jesus says to Peter that he is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church and famously says, The gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But none of that is included here in the Gospel of Mark. And those later Gospels are perhaps embellishing the account to reflect the more fully developed uh, early church at the later date in which they were written. But in Mark, we get the earliest glimpse of this visit. And Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? They said John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns it to them. Well, who do you say that I am. Now, normally we read this as Jesus quizzing the disciples to see if they like good Sunday school students can get the right answer about Jesus. But if we imagine that Jesus was just beginning to understand his own identity and calling, <laughs> he might be genuinely curious. He may be looking for confirmation of his own forming ideas. What are people saying? Well, what do you think? Peter says simply, you are the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus responds, we read in verse 30, a bit harshly, which says, and he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And so whether Jesus agrees with Peter's assessment or not, isn't clear. And Jesus never uses the title Messiah for himself. It's not a title he seems intent on claiming, even if history has insisted on calling him Jesus Christ. Because Messiah in the first century had popular connotations and notions of victory, and often victory achieved by violence against one's enemies. But Jesus has another vision forming, one that involves suffering and service and eventually a cross and his own death. Because it is here, right after this visit, after taking a man by the hand and giving him new sight, after the vision of trees walking after a 50-mile hike to the mouth of the river Lethe, the river of unknowing, that Jesus now knows what lies ahead. And a trip like this is, of course, something the disciples will never forget. And so, friends, maybe you don't know what the next None of us, frankly, knows what the next 5 or 10 or 25 years of our lives will look like. And maybe you're still figuring out who you are or what you want to be when you grow up. Because the world indeed is a little blurry, and yet Jesus makes one thing clear. If we are to follow him, we must take up our cross to do so. Meaning we will look at this world's injustices right in the face and not be daunted. We will walk into the places of pain to bring love and healing, and we will not be turned aside. People living like that would be a sight to behold. Amen and namaste.